Shiza Shahid is a social entrepreneur whose goal is to leverage philanthropy, venture capital, technology, and media for the social good. She's founder of The Collective, a global community of entrepreneurs, investors, artists, business leaders, human rights advocates, and thought leaders who seek to better our world. Last year, she has partnered with AngelList and launched Now Ventures, a seed fund that invests in mission-driven startups. She is best known for her work with the Malala Fund, as you know of the great story of this brave young woman, Malala, the Pakistani, Pakistani girl who at 15 survived being shot in the face for wanting to get an education. She was shot by the Taliban who believe that it's okay to kill young women who want to learn to read and to write and to make a better life for themselves and for their families. A year after the assassination attempt, Shiza, Malala, and Malala's father co-founded the Malala Fund with the goal of securing the right of all girls to a minimum of 12 years of quality education. The priority countries for the fund are Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Nigeria, and those with many Syrian refugees, such as Lebanon and Jordan. During the Malala Fund's first year, Time Magazine named, Time Magazine named Shiza, who was the organization's CEO, one of the 30 under 30 people changing the world. Please give a warm welcome to our guest, Shiza Shahid. Thank you, Rabbi Cantor, sisters and brothers. It is my greatest privilege to be with you today. And I want to start by wishing you Shana Tova, Gemar Chatima Tova. And it is my privilege to be here in loving memory of the trailblazing Anita Chesterline. I have the honor to address you at a time of deep reflection, cleansing, and atonement as you enter the final hours of your fast and before the gates close, I pray that we may all be inscribed in the book of life for good. And since you have given me this great honor and invited me into this beautiful congregation with your hearts wide open, I can think of no way to express my gratitude and love that is better than simply sharing my story with you with the utmost openness and vulnerability. Because it is by sharing our stories that we are able to truly see one another, to break down the barriers that exist between us, and come together in shared love and humanity. My story begins in an unlikely place, and it begins with the story of my parents. Nothing about my origins, who my parents are, where I was born, could have indicated that I would be standing here today. By all reasonable expectations, I should have been living in a village in Pakistan with a limited education, with limited opportunity, my only real purpose in life, that of a wife and a mother. But it was the choices that my parents made before and after I was born that gave me a chance at a better life. Let me tell you a little bit about their story. My father was born in a village in Pakistan. He lost his own father when he was nine years old, and after that grew up quite poor. 
He knew that to make ends meet, he didn't have many options. And when he was young, enrolled in a cadet college that would allow him to become a part of the Pakistani Navy. That was the only way that he could put himself through school and eventually save enough money to support the rest of his family. He's a small man with a very big heart. My mother was born in a neighboring city into a very, very traditional family. She was the oldest of four sisters, and she knew at a young age that her only opportunity in life would be to get married and have children and be a housewife. She knew that she would not have the opportunity to have a career. She was married to my father when she was 19 years old, looked around on their wedding day and asked which one he was. But luckily, they turned out to be a strong couple, supporting and empowering each other, traveling and building a life. And they made the radical decision that no matter the cost, their children would have a better education. So I was fortunate. I got to grow up in the capital of Pakistan, Islamabad, in a loving home. And I had an education that at the very least, allowed me to be upwardly mobile. But I was also growing up in Pakistan at a time when things were challenging in the country. Pakistan has the second highest number of children out of school in the entire world. It is consistently ranked the second worst place to be born a woman. And at the time that I was growing up, things were getting worse. There was a military dictatorship, there was rising terrorism, things like suicide attacks that I had never heard of in the first decade of my life were now coming closer and closer to my own home. I needed to make sense of what was happening to my society. And the only way that I could think of doing that was by venturing outside and trying to connect with those who suffered the hardships that I only saw from afar. So when I was 13 years old, I began volunteering in women's prisons. I would volunteer with a nonprofit that set up medical camps because there were no female doctors to serve the female inmates. But what surprised me most about my time in the prisons was that I met lots and lots of little children, less than a year old, one year old, and they had been born to their mothers in prison and had never left. They were growing up inside prison because there was no one outside who wanted them. It was there that I came to understand what it meant to be discarded before you're even born and to never be given a chance by society at a better life. When I was 14, I began volunteering in microfinance and microenterprise projects. I was immediately struck by the power of women to lift themselves out of poverty if given the opportunities to be entrepreneurial. I remember one woman in particular whom we gave a loan to, along with some business training. She used the loan to start a corner shop that lifted her family out of debt and then to send her three daughters to school. She didn't just uplift her own possibilities, but those of her family and her community. This was a pattern that we saw over and over again the most significant way to tackle poverty is to empower women. But there were significant challenges to empowering women in the public space. 
in the most conservative parts of Pakistan, the female body was controlled with a vengeance. Men believed that their own honor or izzat lived in a woman's body and must be guarded by them and if violated by something as simple as the male gaze must be avenged through violence. When I was 16, there was a major earthquake in Pakistan. Almost 70,000 people died, and this was a tragedy that affected me personally. I dealt with that by spending the next year, day in and day out, working in an earthquake relief camp. The camp housed victims of the earthquake who had lost everything, including their homes, and they lived in makeshift tents as their homes. And many days would almost feel normal. I would help organize weddings, I have a few children named after me now. And I would chat with the young teenage girls in the camp, all victims of the earthquake, about music and movies and boys. And then something would happen that would remind me just how challenging the circumstances really were. I remember one day sitting with them inside their their tents, which were hot and claustrophobic during the day, and saying, let's go outside for a walk. Let's get some fresh air. And they turned to me and said, Our fathers and our brothers don't want us to be seen in public. It was there that I came to understand what it meant to be a woman in some of the harshest cultures in the world and have your very silhouette be a source of shame. It was in these worlds with their contradictory ideas, complexities, and nuances that my understanding of the world was challenged and cut open. How could a woman have so much power, yet no power at all? How could a place be filled with so much tragedy and poverty, yet so much joy, generosity, and love? How could some people be so cruel in the name of pursuing their religion, yet others be filled with the greatest love and charity in the name of that same religion? What I learned in these interactions, I would never have understood had I not set out beyond the life that I was born into, beyond the experiences that where I was born destined me to have. But these interactions in my youth were the beginning of a life of constant curiosity, openness, and empathy that I carry forward in how I live today, or at least I try. Because the truth is we all spend our lives in a particular place, in a particular way, and we very quickly take on a particular view of the world. But questioning our assumptions, our prejudices, our biases, our beliefs has never been more important than it is today. Because we live in America at a time when there is an unprecedented rise in anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, shootings of unarmed black men, deportations of families that have lived in America for decades, where black bodies are seen as criminal, brown bodies as illegal, LGBTQI bodies as immoral, and women's bodies as property. We must break free of the cages of our stereotypes and our hatred because we need fewer walls and more bridges And that begins by coming together in love and in understanding. Now, when I was 17, I began applying to colleges. I fully expected to go to a local school in Pakistan, but I thought I would try my luck. Naively, I googled top 10 schools in the United States. 
I couldn't afford to pay, so I asked for a full scholarship and applied to all of them. Once again, life gave me a lucky break, and I was given a full scholarship to Stanford University. I was very happy and a little terrified. And as I moved to California, my perspective shifted. Here I was in the heart of Silicon Valley, surrounded by breakthrough technological innovations. New companies like Twitter, Airbnb, Facebook were right next door, and they were changing the way that we lived. I was captivated by the revolution happening around me. I began to wonder if my work fighting for social justice on the ground, brick by brick, had I been missing more powerful tools all along in that work? Had I come to Stanford so I could acquire the tools that would allow me to fight for a better world more effectively, more scalably, more innovatively, more efficiently? But back home in Pakistan, things were getting worse and worse. Terrorism was growing. I felt the social fabric of my society crumbling. There was a suicide attack less than a mile from my home. Another one in the hotel where my sister had just gotten married. I became increasingly fearful for my own family. I would go to bed at night with my cell phone on full volume, fully expecting a call with bad news. But it was in my sophomore year that I stumbled upon something that shook me to my core. I watched a video online. It was made by an 11-year-old girl. She lived in the Swat Valley. This was a part of Pakistan that is fairly remote. It is about 300 miles north of where I grew up. This town had been taken over by a terrorist group linked to the Taliban. They had become increasingly violent. They had started blowing up girls' schools. And in January 2009, when I was a sophomore, they declared an all-out ban on female education. This little girl in her video called out to the world. She said, they are taking away our right to education. This is my request to the world. Save my school. Save my Swamp Valley. I remember watching that video feeling deeply accountable to this young child. I had grown up so close to where she lived. I could have been her, yet here I was getting this incredible education. One of the challenges was that very few people knew what was happening in the Swamp Valley. This was a remote part of the country, so it was difficult for journalists to gain access. And those on the inside, schoolgirls, like the one who had made this video, they had always been so isolated that they weren't connected to the wider world and struggled to have their voices heard. I thought perhaps there was something I could do. Perhaps I could help the stories of the schoolgirls of Swamp Valley reach the world, much in the way that Anne Frank's story shook us to our core. It was time that the world heard what the schoolgirls of the Swamp Valley were going through. And maybe if they heard the story earlier, they would act to protect them. So I went back to Pakistan that summer with an audacious plan. I would create a summer camp in my hometown, Islamabad, and I would sneak out schoolgirls from the Swamp Valley to the summer camp. I would train them to tell their stories and give them the networks and the resources to make sure that those stories were heard all over the world. 
So that's what I did, summer of my sophomore year in Pakistan. And it was an experience that moved me profoundly. The girls were remarkable. And around that same time, the government of Pakistan did intervene in the Swamp Valley. The girls got to go back to school, and the lessons that they learned in the summer camp would stay with them as they built their lives as schoolgirls and activists. But there was one little girl in the summer camp that moved me the most. It was the same little girl who had made the video, who had inspired me to create this camp. And it was a little girl named Malala. This was long before Malala was shot by the Taliban and would later go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But that's where our relationship began, and that's where she began sharing her story and raising her voice. I didn't know it then, but six years later, one of the little girls that I had mentored in that summer camp would go on to become the most powerful voice for change in the entire world. What I took away from that experience was that we have the power to change that which we cannot accept, whether that is in our own life or in the world around us. I could have done nothing that summer, and in many ways it was not my place. But from my dorm room at Stanford, while drinking my Starbucks latte, I found a way to empower a girl in the Swamp Valley who would go on six years later to become the youngest ever Nobel Peace Prize winner. So you must never doubt your ability to achieve anything, become anything, overcome anything, and inspire everything. In the words of Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. After that summer camp, I went back to Stanford. I continued to do social justice work on the ground in Pakistan, And while at school, I became more and more interested in the tools of technology and entrepreneurship as a way to drive social change. I thought to myself, if I was going to be a warrior for social justice, then I needed the most powerful weapons, and I fully intended to acquire them. The weapons of science and innovation, of storytelling, of networks of innovators and fellow social justice warriors, and capital. It was clear to me that something remarkable was happening in the world. A girl born in my hometown in Pakistan, for example, with access to a smartphone and the internet, has more information today than the U.S. president did 15 years ago. This allows us to reimagine the ways in which we change the world. But at the same time, there were clear imbalances. In Silicon Valley, less than 3% of investment capital was going to women entrepreneurs, less than 0.2% to black women entrepreneurs. What that meant was we simply weren't funding the innovations that could change the world. Instead, we were funding things that solved problems for the urban upper middle classes, laundry delivery apps, food delivery apps, dating apps, One investor called it using technology to solve all of the challenges your mother used to take care of. (laughs) 
So when I graduated from Stanford, I made the decision to pivot to business. I got a job offer from McKinsey & Company. At the time, it was a top consulting firm in the world and the number one hirer of Stanford graduates. Naively, I made a five-year plan. I would get two to three years of business training at McKinsey. I would then get a fancy business school degree. And then I would bring my two worlds of impact and business together. But God, or the universe, had other plans for me. I was just a year into my job at McKinsey when I got a text message that made my heart stop. The text message said, Malala has been shot. I felt the world go silent. Malala had been on her way home from school when two masked gunmen boarded her bus. They asked, who is Malala? They then shot her in the head. They fired two more bullets, injuring her friends Shazia and Kainat, though luckily their injuries were less severe. I was devastated. I flew immediately to Birmingham in the UK, where Malala had been airlifted for treatment. I wanted to be there to help her and her family heal. Miraculously, as we know today, Malala not only survived, she suffered no brain damage. It is the greatest miracle that I have ever witnessed. I told Malala once she was awake and feeling better, Malala, what do you want to do next? So many people have called me because they've heard your story and they've asked me how they can help. What should I tell them to do? And she looked at me and she said, I want to do what we were doing in Pakistan, what we did at your summer camp and after that, but I want to do that all over the world, and I want you to help me. In that moment, I knew that what Malala had been through had the potential to be far more than a day in the news cycle, another story of a victim that we heard about that shocked us that we soon forgot. And I also knew that Malala, like before, wanted to continue to raise her voice to help girls in Pakistan and around the world get an education. In that moment, I had a decision to make. Would I go back to my five-year plan, my path, or would I quit my job and try and take this tragic moment and build a movement that could help girls around the world get an education? I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I was terrified. But I knew it was now or never, and my heart had a clear answer. I believe there are certain defining moments in our lives. Those are moments where we decide who we are, and this is true in our careers, in our relationships, in our values. This was a defining moment for me, and I've never looked back. So I set out on a two-year journey to help bring the world the story of Malala and through that story, the story of 130 million girls around the world that are denied an education. And along with that story, an actionable way to make a difference. We created an organization called the Malala Fund, which is now a global nonprofit. And through that organization, focused on the 130 million girls missing from classrooms today, and the millions and millions more that are not learning anything of actual value. We know that without an education, girls are trapped in a cycle of poverty, but with an education, they are the most catalytic driver to fight, to fight poverty. When a girl is educated, 
through secondary school. She marries later. She has children later. Her children are less likely to die in childbirth. She is more likely to live a healthy life. Her children are more likely to go to school, and she is more likely to earn an income. And 90% of every dollar that a woman earns, she invests back into her community. It's typically 30 to 40% for men. So if there's a silver bullet in fighting international poverty, it's probably educating young girls. Two and a half years into leading the Malala Fund, we had told Malala's story through two best-selling books, through a documentary that was being produced here in L.A. by a well-known filmmaker, Davis Guggenheim, who'd created films like Inconvenient Truth and Waiting for Superman. Her story had shattered stereotypes around the world about what courage looks like, what bravery looks like. We were advocating for policy changes around the world with governments, pushing them to guarantee 12 years of free, high-quality education for all girls. We were investing in projects on the ground that supported the rights of refugee children to go to school, that supported girls in places like northern Nigeria, where terrorist groups like Boko Haram were kidnapping schoolgirls. And at the end of those two and a half years, we received a call from the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. Malala became the youngest ever Nobel Peace Prize winner. It was an extraordinary journey, and I will never forget the moment when we were in Oslo together, when she walked up onto that stage where Martin Luther King and the greatest civil rights leaders of our times had stood. And there she was, all of five foot two, wearing her headscarf, and she showed the world what girls can do when they are given an education and when they are given a voice. I also knew in that moment that Malala was safe and healthy and that the Malala Fund was growing in its impact. And it was time for me to once again get outside my comfort zone and innovate with greater urgency. We had told Malala's story and I still believe that storytelling is the most powerful way to put ideas into the world. But we now needed to execute effectively against those ideas. I kept thinking back to the power of entrepreneurship and technology that I had witnessed. I began to meet entrepreneurs with big ideas in education, healthcare, financial inclusion, and other massive social challenges. They reminded me of Malala. They had a bold vision, but they needed to bring it to life. But they needed funding and networks and technology and mentorship. I realized that we, as social justice warriors, need to be equipped with the tools of our times and a bigger vision for this global struggle for justice. So I came full circle with Malala's blessing handing her the reins to the Malala Fund and moving back to California, where I launched an early-stage investment fund with an audacious idea to invest in technology businesses that would change the world, the other Malalas, leaders with bold visions in education, healthcare, financial inclusion, commerce, work, wellness, and more. Because we have inherited a world that is broken, where greed is institutionalized, where rampant inequality is considered inevitable, even positive, where businesses are told their only responsibility is to maximize profits, 
But those are old ideas, not of our making, and they are not true. All of what we do, how we work, how we consume, how we invest, how we do business, how we do philanthropy, can and should drive towards a more just and equitable world. All boats can rise together. Poverty is not natural. We can create a world of abundance, free from hunger, poverty, sickness, violence, fear, where a child born anywhere in the world has the opportunity to pursue his or her dreams. What I want to share from this pivot in my work is that when you are bringing change, I urge you to look at the tools that you are using and choose the tools that will maximize your impact. If you are a photographer, use your camera. A lawyer, your skills in the justice system. A poet, your words. An investor, your portfolio. And then partner with others with complementary skills to scale up your work. Doing small acts of kindness matter, but you must also recognize your power to do good in a much bigger way. We sit here in Westwood, in a city with so much talent, influence, and access. We are the lucky ones. We can create waves of change. And if we don't, then we perpetuate the status quo. If we recognize the tools we possess and the tools our neighbors possess and reach across to partner, innovate, and are crazy enough to believe that we can change the world, then we can change the world. And that brings us to today in my story as I stand here with you in this community of love at a time of infinite possibilities and also deep injustice, at a time when science and technology are allowing us to re-engineer the human genome, put robots on Mars, create self-driving cars, increase lifespans by decades, at a time when the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented rising hate crimes, white supremacists are emboldened, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is rampant, families are being torn apart as hardworking, taxpaying Americans are deported from the only home they have ever known. We have inherited wars and cruel systems not of our making. There is a greater need than ever before to come together, to evolve from fear to love, from otherness to togetherness. This synagogue has as its defining principle radical inclusivity. Whoever you are, however you identify, you are welcome. I am welcome. What a beautiful principle. I have lived in Pakistan, in the Middle East, in Europe, in America, and my closest friends are Jewish, Muslim, Baha'i, Christian, agnostic, everything in between, and I share more with them than someone you may naturally assume to be my people. We are connected by love. We are connected by tikkun olam, the call of our times to heal the world. If you see what needs to be repaired and how to repair it, you have found your peace that God intended for you to repair. And if you have not, then drive down a few miles to Skid Row, to a homeless shelter, to a deportation center where children are being held without their parents, to a prison where nonviolent offenders are being held in solitary confinement, or take this device in your hand and learn about how climate change is accelerating at a more rapid pace than ever before, or any of the multitude of social issues that you choose to be your piece of the world to heal. 
Now, if this is overwhelming, remind yourself that tikkun olam begins with ourselves. One of my favorite movies is Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And in the movie, Nora says, there's this part of Judaism that I love called tikkun olam. And it says the world has been broken into pieces and we have to find those pieces and repair it. And Nick responds, well, maybe we are the pieces, you know? Maybe we aren't supposed to find the pieces. Maybe we are the pieces. Do not be overwhelmed by the enormity of this task. Pick your piece. Know that you are the piece. As the Sufi poet Rumi once said, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Now, I know that these 10 days have been a time of reflection and prayer, but as the gates come to a close, I'll ask you to reflect one last time with me. And if you would close your eyes and put your hand on your heart and feel your heartbeat and ask yourself what is one social issue that you feel strongly about that has made you angry in recent days. Now ask yourself what is one thing you can do to make a small impact on that issue. And now ask yourself what's holding you back? What are the barriers? What are you scared of? And finally, as you feel your heartbeat, commit to overcoming that fear for the sake of someone who needs your courage, who needs your voice. Because as your heart beats alongside that of everyone else in this room, you know that we are all connected in ways far deeper than we can fathom. You can open your eyes now. It has been my greatest privilege to be here with you. Shana Tova, Gemar Chatima Tova. May we all be inscribed in the Book of Life for good. Thank you. Amen. Amen.